You are listening to the Ethics for Medics podcast with Edju Dinucci and Christopher Bjerghese. Welcome back, everybody, to our season finale. It's the Ethics for Medics podcast, the final episode of season two. And we got the usual token philosopher, Ezio. Then we've got a couple of regular guests. Maria is back. Hello. Jiong is back. Hi. And then we've got our usual medic. Yes. And we still have not managed to get enough mics. So there are four people, three mics. The topic of this final episode is very serious. As our most trusted listeners will remember, in episode 2.7, we talked about suicide and we promised that we would follow that discussion about suicide with a dedicated episode on the debate around assisted suicide, whether assisted suicide should be legalized, what is the difference between assisted suicide and euthanasia. And uh, this debate has been raging in the country where the podcast is based, Denmark, because recently the National Ethics Council of Denmark came out against assisted suicide by a very uh, wide majority of 16 out of 17 members were against legalizing assisted suicide. The Danish Medical Association is similarly also against assisted suicide. So what's the big deal with assisted suicide? Do we want to, is, that, is what we want to talk about today? And, uh, and as we were doing prep just, just there, we were debating amongst ourselves, like, so why is it such a big deal, assisted suicide? Well, because it's about life and death, but maybe another reason why people care about assisted suicide and euthanasia is that it challenges the very raison d'etre of medicine and healthcare. If we understand medicine as being about saving lives, then the idea that sometimes we intentionally terminate life uh, is quite a challenging idea. And, uh, and maybe that also explains why there is broad support in the, among the general public for legislation around assisted suicide, but actually medics and politicians seems to be very careful. And, um, and those are the things that we want to, um, that we want to discuss with you today. And, uh, and maybe we will just start, I don't know who wants to do this, but with a very simple distinction between euthanasia and assisted suicide. Jiang, do you want to draw that distinction for our listeners? Yeah, as I understand it, at least, I think euthanasia is just when the act of killing or using a lethal method. So there is a kind of direct contact or delivery of um, the termination of life, whereas um, assisted suicide would be more like you provide like the tool, but the patient themselves has to take the lethal dose or. Yeah, so to make it very concrete in this perspective, right? The doctor is either the one literally killing the patient or providing the help for the patient themselves to kill themselves. And both is, in the Danish system at least, uh, illegal for the doctor, both in the medical, ethical institution and also legally. Doctors are neither allowed to directly kill patients, whether or not the patient wants to be killed. I guess that's one of the important distinctions here, right? So we normally... Uh, are very critical of intentional killing uh, on the assumption that the people being killed don't want to be killed. The One of the crucial issues about, around euthanasia and assisted suicide is that sometimes 
patients want to be killed or want to die or no longer want to live. And, um, and I guess what, Christopher, what you were telling us is that in, within the Danish system, there is no distinction being made between a doctor directly killing a patient who wants to die and a doctor helping a patient die who no longer wants to live. And I think maybe, I mean, it's interesting in connecting this episode with the previous one about suicide. It's interesting maybe to reflect on the following, namely that we discussed respect for the possibility of committing suicide uh, within society at large. So that even just the title of the episode was Should Every Suicide Be Prevented? Suggesting that sometimes we should respect someone's wish to die. And now it's quite difficult, it seems to me, if we're going to accept that basic principle of autonomy, that if someone wants to die under certain conditions, we should respect their wish to die just on grounds of autonomy, then it seems to me that it's quite difficult to say, oh, if this person wants to die and we should respect their wish because of reasons A, B, and C, but the person happens to be incapacitated and therefore cannot do it themselves, now we don't help them. Right? It seems as though normally the way our society is organized, if someone is entitled to something and they're just incapacitated, we try to provide that thing for them. But in this case, so this would be the case of assisted suicide, so that this person for some reason no longer wants to live, they might have a very painful terminal illness or something like that, but they are physically incapacitated in killing themselves. If they would kill themselves, that would be fine. But just because they're physically incapacitated and they need help, our legal system does not allow us to provide the help. That would be, I guess, one standard way. And I guess we're not here to push our own agenda or our own views of assisted suicide. We're just here to provide the listeners with the tools to do the analysis and the reflection themselves. But one standard argument would be to say, look, if we're going to be liberal about suicide, then we might have to be liberal about assisted suicide as well. Otherwise, we're discriminating against people that are physically incapacitated from satisfying their wish to die. Do people agree with me? Yeah, I, yeah, that's an easy one. I would say yes, yes, I do agree with you on that. Um, but does that mean that we should legalize assisted suicide then? <laughs> uh, well, that's a tough question. I'm not going to answer it. <laughs> um, But I can ask the philosopher here then, because um, among the different countries which has to, have to some extent allowed or very much allowed uh, assisted suicide, they also distinguish between people who will inev inevitably die soon and then people who are in suffering in general in their life and there is no clear evidence that they will die soon. What would be the philosophical distinction here if there is any so which of the two philosophers in the room should answer <laughs> that I, i can start joe and then you take over once i run out of beer uh, no i think i think you're making a, a couple of important distinctions there and, and first of all one that we were also discussing in preparation which is sometimes people refer to assisted dying as opposed to assisted suicide and our understanding is that the reason why they emphasize the assisted dying as opposed to assisted suicide in the in the former case, people are dying anyway, right? So for example, they might have a very painful terminal illness. So what we're doing in helping them is just accelerating something that is happening anyway, right? While the assisted suicide might refer to people that 
have had enough for other reasons or they might have you know chronic depression or something like that and uh, and then obviously as christopher is pointing out the ethical and philosophical question which is really hard is is there a relevant difference there i mean i will just point out that we're all dying anyway right so every time we're just accelerating something that is inevitable right? and still you know we can't sit here and compare ourselves to terminal patients so we also have to take those um, differences uh, very seriously so i think yes i mean maybe i can actually throw this on to jiang in, in, in the following way jiang maybe we can reflect on both is there a genuine difference between assisted dying and assisted suicide does it make a difference should it make a difference whether or not a patient is terminal and also is there a genuine difference between euthanasia and assisted suicide does it make a difference whether the doctor physically gives the pill or puts the pill in the patient's mouth as opposed to giving it to the patient and then the patient puts it in her own mouth i mean are those kind of practical differences worth philosophical or ethical uh, consideration or as just sort of logistics that we should disregard when we provide the ethical analysis i think to your uh, first point about whether there's a relevant difference between like having a terminal illness versus i don't know a, a chronic um, mental illness that is maybe a more defined on a subjective basis rather than on the fact that they will inevitably die um, I think to that point, I just want to say that maybe making that distinction in the first place is kind of like committing ourselves to a dichotomy between like how we should treat mental health in the healthcare system versus like, I guess, physiological uh, ill health, right? And that could maybe be problematized or seen as objectionable um, because... I guess if the reasons for why people um, come forward to request um, assisted suicide and things like that is, is not about the fact that it's terminal or not, it's because they are suffering, right? If suffering is the relevant um, condition that is being treated through something like assisted suicide, then presumably we should not commit to this dichotomy between, oh, is the suffering caused by... Uh, a terminal illness or is it caused by the fact that you have uh, depression or uh, something else so maybe that's you know that's something to reflect on for sure i agree and i definitely want to give the word to the mental health expert in the room um, but but I, I would completely agree with jiang that first of all we have to be careful in not falling into this old trap of prioritizing physical health or, or physical illness over mental health or mental illness but also i think you're now speaking to our original question namely what should the focus of medicine be in the first place and maybe the focus should not be this is the suggestion from jiang should not be survivor or delaying death or preventing uh, early death but it should be you know addressing suffering and if it is addressing suffering maybe that speaks for being more liberal about assisted suicide but the word goes to our in-house mental health expert, Maria. Yeah, so I, I would actually like to ask you guys a question because when I was reading a little bit for today's episode, you know, I started thinking about how we define suffering. So what is suffering? At what point, like if we say, right, someone that is suffering so much that they cannot, there's, you know, they cannot stop the suffering, then they should be allowed to 
die in a dignified way and, and, and be assisted to do that. Is there a threshold where we can say, oh, that's enough suffering. You've suffered enough and we've done enough for you that now it's time, you know, or it's time for you or we can allow you to, you know, to to have this assisted suicide. And, and a concrete example would be if we go back to some of these mental health mm. cases, um, cases in the Netherlands or in Canada where people with mental health, chronic mental health conditions that have been in treatment uh, for a long time at some point come forward and say, you know, I, I, I really want to die. Treatment is not working. I've tried to uh, be in treatment many times. I, I want your assistance to help me die instead of having to commit suicide, you know, in a way that it's going to be more traumatic for my family and so on. So wh wh what's this threshold? Mm. Um, I think Can I say that? Oh, no, sorry, John, go ahead. No, I was just saying it does go back to what we spoke about in the last episode about, like, uh, what is the threshold for suicide prevention, right? Mm -hmm. Is it when um, all the treatments that the person has tried has been, uh, you know, they've been unresponsive to it and they cannot find a way out of their suffering? So I think the way that, um, I think some of the countries that have like been more liberal about these issues, like Canada, I think they talk about something called irredeemable <laughs> suffering or something like that. And of course we can debate there about, okay, what, what exactly is the content of of that what counts as irredeemable or not, but maybe it speaks mm -hmm. again to some of the issues we encountered in the last episode of like, at what point do we say that someone is like unresponsive to um, treatments that can get during their lives that would make their lives go better or not. Um, so maybe drawing the line itself is a bit arbitrary, but we can still recognize that there maybe will be some kind of threshold at which we do recognize like, okay, yeah, we can see that, you know, they've tried many different things or, like, we don't necessarily see uh, a way out for that person to have a better quality of life. And then, you know, it's always, I guess, up for debate <laughs> what point we should allow that to... Mm -hmm. But, yeah. the inter like, if I can just follow up on that, I think the interesting point is that different countries have different views on that issue, mm -hmm. right? So that also speaks about, you know, the, like... I don't want to say how random that is, but, it, you know, there are a lot of different things influencing this, you know, defining what, what is enough suffering to allow you to have this assisted suicide. And and what is it that is, you know, saying that's okay or not okay? Is the ethical committees in one country are saying that's, you know, we do not agree with that. And then ethical committees in another country say, well, you know, you know what, here we will allow this. Um, and why there are these differences? Shouldn't that be more... Universal. Can I make a cheap philosophical point here and distinguish between the hard question of where should we draw the line and the different but as hard question of who should draw the line? Because I think one of the, so for example, this, this Canadian example that Gion gave us about sort of not being responsive to treatment, I guess that's, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting practical proposal. That's one possible way of drawing the line, right? But I wonder whether that suggests that the line should be drawn medically, while an alternative way of thinking in terms of who should draw the line is, well, actually, that question is really easy. The individual themselves should draw the line. That's how our healthcare system works. It's based on autonomy. It's based on the principle of informed consent. And uh, so while it is really, really difficult to objectively or 
draw the line and to draw a kind of universal line across cultures, across healthcare systems and stuff like that. There is one easy way of doing that uh, generally, which is to say, well, you decide yourself when you've had enough. And when you decide that you've had enough, whether or not you've got a mental health condition, then the system, in this case, the healthcare system, if you need assistance, should respect, like in every other case within medicine, that you've had enough. Is that too radical a way of thinking about this? That if we want to be liberal and keep a consent-based healthcare system, then when it comes to drawing this line, we again have to rely on the patient drawing that line. We also have the problem that uh, the patient in general cannot <clears throat> don't have the right to uh, ask for a certain kind of treatment mm -hmm. in general, right? They have the right to mm -hmm. say no to things. So in this specific case, you know, it is also partly societal, democratic, uh, philosophically, whatever, reasons that determine what we offer in society. So just put it on to the individual saying they are in charge of it is actually going against many of the basic principles we have in healthcare, both in the Danish system and in international. Um, can I just follow up with that and ask, like, in Denmark, do people not have a right to, like, I don't know, receive emergency treatment or in through the healthcare system? Or, I mean, aren't, aren't there, basically, aren't there, like, positive rights people have to healthcare? It's right? true, definitely. It's uh, definitely there. Are. So uh, it's also a good argument to complicate these things even more, right? To say they do have some rights to for healthcare and so on, for sure. But it's it's much more limited compared to the other thing, the other way around. That you always have the right to say no yeah, to treatment, but course. you definitely rarely have the right to ask. Yeah, for demand stuff. treatment. Or but I guess Christopher is pointing out to something important that we cover at the medical school, which is, well, one of the things that we're asking when, when we're discussing the ethics of assisted suicide is whether some form of assisted suicide should be added to the basket of healthcare services. Mm -hmm. If it then is added to the basket of healthcare services, for example, through legalizing it, then people might have a positive right to it. And then if they ask for it, then how dare healthcare professional refuse that entitlement right or what is the argument for being more careful about a positive right to die than a positive right to some other uh, healthcare service mm -hmm. so so i think that christopher in, in a way is right that we still have the big question the elephant is still should we add assisted suicide to the basket of services or should we not if we do then we kind of know what's going to happen right so for example there is also an established practice of controversial things being added to the basket of services, like historically abortion, and then a lot of doctors refuse and do conscientious objection, and then there are non, not enough doctors offering abortions. And we could expect in many countries that that would happen mm. to assisted suicide, that then there might be doctors that say, well, look, it's legal, you have an entitlement to it, but you have to go to someone else because I'm not gonna uh, offer that to you. And in line with what you said before, it's with the basic question of who should decide. Then there is also a useful distinction between, you know, what we just have discussed now and the difficult uh, distinction philosophically, but also, you know, look at it empirically is also another approach to it to say, okay, what are actually the experiences from other countries 
for example, to if you have a very open approach to assisted suicide, how many people are actually doing it? Do you have any idea of how many mistakes you're doing and how which role does the state start playing in this new kind of society, which is and more an empirical question than a philosophically or ethically question, but nevertheless, it will just be like a surpassing or bypassing the philosophical question. But sometimes that is at least a way to approach it, or at least something one should be aware of, even if one has a, a clear idea of. Uh, and I think it was Maria that during prep was saying that, for example, in Canada, which is one of the most liberal uh, systems around assisted suicide, the rest being. Uh, an increase in cases after legalization. And I guess some people are worried of this, you know, it's a kind of slippery slope kind of argument. Some people are worried that, you know, if you legalize something like assisted suicide, then it's sort of, you know, it's a kind of opening of the floodgates. And then we're going to, you know, be killing too many people or helping too many people to die and make this kind of mistakes, which are, as we discussed in the previous episodes, that's one of the relevant ethical differences. These mistakes are irreversible. Right. Not every mistake in medicine and healthcare is irreversible, but obviously mistakes made around, you know, assisted suicide decision making are irreversible. And but since we're I talking ask, about like, uh, what what would count as a mistake in this case? Is it to assist people when they could have not gone through with uh, dying and would have left uh, lived an otherwise happy life? Or what what do we mean by mistake? I think that's something to consider, at least if we assume that, you know, the people who would be motivated to come forward for this are doing so because they are suffering, mm -hmm. right? No, I, I think that's a really good question, Jiang. And I think, so one of one of the reasons why I was suggesting, look, the answer to the question, where to do the line is easy, let the, let the individual decide, is exactly in line with this kind of questioning, namely, maybe there is no mistake if we let the person themselves decide but i guess when, of course when, we have to assume that they were you know not pressured by anyone in an undue way people will worry the... about cases in which i don't know the family puts pressure on an elderly person to ask for it and actually then we find out i don't know we find the note of this elderly person after we've helped them die that mm -hmm. you know that i really didn't want to and i was scared but, you know, but my family was putting pressure. My kids, you know, had enough of me or something like that. Uh, I don't have a, a, you know, a really good case study here uh, out of my pocket. But I think this is the kind of things that people might be afraid of uh, increasing and, and kind of losing control mm -hmm. over, over these kind of things. But I think, can I just make one small comment about it? I'm grateful that people brought up the sort of uh, the diversity of systems and the different ways in which one can be liberal about assisted suicide. I think... Everybody has probably heard of the countries that are the most liberal ones, Canada, the Netherlands, Belgium, Switzerland. But interestingly, some of only some of these countries have legalized assisted suicide as such. One of the more prominent examples in, in Europe, even though it's outside of the EU, is Switzerland. And Switzerland has not actually legalized assisted suicide. It's just that helping people die in Switzerland is not illegal. And then the private sector has actually come in and filled that gap. Right? So there is no assisted dying in the Swiss healthcare sector. There are just private institutions that do that. And a lot of people from all over Europe travel to Switzerland for that kind of service. Um, I mean, this is just to increase slightly the complexity. You might think that 
legalizing it. For these kind of people that are worried about slippery slope arguments, you might think that legalizing it is more dangerous than just not forbidding it. Right? On the other end, you might think that leaving it to the private sector instead of bringing it into the public healthcare system is the more dangerous thing because then the state has less control. Yeah, it's definitely ironic that very often we are very skeptic about the private sector's interest when it comes to healthcare, right? And then in this case, where clearly it's all about life and death, then one country choose to, you know, let it be up to the private sector to handle it. And I was also thinking something else we might just mention or that is, I think, worth paying attention to is also the choice of words that one use for for these kind of things. I mean, one part is, of course, the whole, what is in general the right words to, to use, but also it, it does have a huge impact on how we understand the whole situation, which I also think is worth considering if, for example, one look at the polls about the Danes, for example, their opinion about assisted suicide and so on. Because, for example, Maria, you mentioned earlier, like, uh, what did you say? Not a worth for that? What is that? Uh, um, did I say like a, a decent way of dying or like dignified way yeah, of dying? Right? Like so, that, yeah. like if you are, s- and, and I think that goes back to the empirical, right? Like, when you hear people talking about it, people that have gone through that or that someone in their family, you know, they, they helped someone in their family to, to die. Um, I think that's what they also talk about, right? They, they just wanted a dignified way of dying and not having, right? And being able to choose how and when after suffering a lot and also, you know, being able to not put the burden on their family members to help them die, but just having a healthcare system or a healthcare provider that would help them do so in the best possible way where they could also say their goodbyes to their families and people that they love and just you know also give some closure that might also be positive for those that stay right mm-hmm. i mean if you compare you know experiencing the suicide of someone you love versus you know perhaps being able to go through this process in this other way uh, i mean there, there might have there might be positive psychological consequences for those that stay to be able to, you know, hold the hand of someone that that has decided to die, even if you disagree. Yeah, and I also think it's, I totally agree. I just think it's also very interesting for people to reconsider the the words and also, you know, how deeply they have an idea of what it means in reality, right? Mm-hmm. Because even though I agree, I also Im- often think of the opposite. How there is there is no dignified death. You know, life is tough. It's all, we're all animals. And, you know, it's always nasty to die. Or at least that could, if that is the assumption about life, that it's it's tough dying. And, you know, most people, animals, plants are suffering. But then, it's tough to live as me, well. But no, can I, I challenge that? No, in a moment, it's yes. just, <laughs> easily, you can, easily you can challenge this. Yeah. I'm just, it's just to say, you know, if, if that is the, assumption or that is the starting point then people might change their ideas about uh, assisted suicide because then it might have a little romantic uh, mm-hmm. perspective yeah. to say okay i imagine this is how it's gonna end but then i can just as a doctor say well i'm sorry very often despite trying the best we can at the hospital and so on to to give people a dignified death it's it's tragic it's terrible it's literally it's nasty way people are dying 
and if the aim of doing the assisted suicide is to have this nice closing end of their life then you know they might need to change their perception or point of view no and i, and I see your point about this romantic romanticized way of dying i think you know going back to something that i read the, um, i mean the, this was this man that was experienced or suffering this very severe deteriorating illness where he needed assisted uh, like some kind of assistance to breathe uh, so it was really like he was really re ready to die right he didn't want to live like that and he was denied the right to have this assisted suicide uh, he was living in the uk and then i think he said something very very powerful he said well you know i could still commit suicide i could remove in some way the machine that is helping me to breathe but then i know that i would suffocate to death and i'm i'm afraid i'm scared and why i cannot have someone help me sedate me and then let me just go to sleep and die like that and and i, I think that's what i meant by dignified death right yeah, i mean I, the fear yeah. of dying in such way like suffocating yourself we can all relate to that so if the alternative might be to have this other way of you know going while you sleep i guess that's how we all dream when we think about dying then you know yeah that's what i meant by dignified dying definitely yeah. and i agree it's just all about you know choosing the words because then people have an idea of how it, it works and i would use the same word as you it's just all of it how does it mean to assist is it are we killing people are using fancy latin words for it instead to make it less clear what it is about all these kind of things change the ontology of what we're actually talking about but i think it was a powerful reminder from maria that there are things that are worse than dying for example dying by suffocation right we are at the conference you organized last week maria we are the very powerful example of that as well it was this uh, this uh, um Afghan girls that had come to Denmark as refugees in one of these asylum centers, and they tried to commit suicide collectively, four girls. And one of the girls in these interviews that were being presented at your conference said, I didn't want to die, but even less did I want to die in Afghanistan. So I preferred dying in Denmark than dying to Afghanistan. That was her, her rationale for trying to commit suicide. She did not succeed in committing suicide and, and, and these comments come as a, as a grown-up, but she tried when she, was, uh, when she was 12. And I think, again, like with some of the remarks that we heard earlier, this point about there are things that are worse than death, then it opens up for a lot of possibilities, like with Jiang opening up to the fact that, well, healthcare is not about death prevention, but it's about suffering, right? Once we accept that there are things that are worse than death, then you know well, then we need to do some really hard thinking and on the other end i'm i'm very grateful that for once christopher who's normally the medics on this podcast that brings up the big philosophical questions for once christopher you fulfilled your function as a medic you re you reminded us of the reality on the ground and i guess the reality on the ground is that most dying is nasty is painful is dirty is ugly people are afraid people change their mind in the last minute and these kind of things um so I think we definitely, we might want to have dignified death, but we might not want to glorify it as such. And on the other end, I think generally, I know this is not a very fashionable thing to say now, because, you know, taking back control is now associated with Brexit, Brexit and populist movements and stuff like that. But I think there is a sense around the debate on assisted suicide that we might want to take back control over 
one of the fundamental aspects of our life, which is when and how we die. I mean, we've got, especially in our kind of our own privileged lives, we have control over so many things. We can choose so many things. And then one of the crucial uh, moments of our lives, we have very little control over. So while I don't want to glorify death, I do think we can seriously and honestly have a conversation around taking back control over when and how, and for example, with whom we die. Can I follow up on that for a second? Um, I just wonder when you talk about like uh, taking back control, I guess that option would still be open to people who are willing to try and commit suicide on their own, right? So I guess there's still a further question about like, what is the role of the healthcare mm -hmm. system in this? Why should they uh, assist with this? You could say we could achieve this taking about control by maybe, I mean, maybe as a society we could like normalize suicide or something like that not have any laws against people attempting uh, to commit suicide um, but then I feel like there's still a further justification maybe that you know people might seek in terms of okay well we can allow all of this to happen but why should the healthcare system be assisting people with it if they because they can have their own means to I agree with that and that's also a reminder to listeners that if they haven't listened to the previous episode about suicide they should definitely do that uh, because it's very much connected as Jiang just pointed out to this episode um, I mean I will just say that I think we kind of dealt with that problem earlier in the episode namely you're absolutely right that there is that possibility but I guess we at least want to make room for assisted suicide for people that are physically incapacitated. So if we mm. accept the argument, call it taking back control or call it something else, but if we accept the argument for a liberal view of suicide, then I think we need to be more liberal about assisted suicide. Otherwise, we're discriminating against those that are physically incapacitated to do it themselves or that don't have the kind of network and resources within their family to be helped. Mm. And could you also argue that if you also put some responsibility to the healthcare system then you could catch some people that come asking for assisted suicide and as they come into contact with the healthcare system you know you can then provide some kind of care i'm thinking here about mental health right because uh, otherwise they might find other means they might ask someone to help them mm. uh, i mean there's like this sort of like black markets or web websites where you can find ways of right in a way you can control that if you give this responsibility to the healthcare system Yeah, and I think that's the kind of trade-off we were talking about before in terms of, you know, some of this stuff we want to bring in, right? I mean, this is one of the tragedies with the U.S. going back on abortion post-Roe is obviously that, you know, that it's less safe, you know, that it's more difficult to, to prevent accidents and stuff like that, right? So bringing it in independently of one, one ethical view of things as kind of, you know, safety, security, Uh, advantages of its own I guess is is Maria's argument I think that also points to an importance with you know with the bioethical principles we make a distinction between non-maleficence versus beneficence and I feel like what you both have said kind of points to that we should not underestimate the importance of a kind of beneficent system that is not simply like non-intervening with people's lives and what they might be going through but that there's sort of like a more proactive uh, role that the healthcare system should take to ensure that, you know, um, those life goals are being met or the well-being needs are being met and that non-intervention is not enough to have like a 
healthy society. And now, pun intended, this is not going to be our last word, either on this podcast or on assisted suicide, but we hope that we've helped our listeners reflect on these issues in a kind of open way. And on a personal note, I'm very grateful that nobody asked me about my vasectomy. Hope you enjoyed this season. See you all next year. Hey, Joe, we need to know, have you done your vasectomy? Uh, uh, not yet. <laughs> not yet. Uh, the appointment system in Denmark is so dysfunctional that I did not manage to book an appointment. <laughs>